seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Planet Society. I am one of your hosts, as always, Adam Proctor, and we've got uh, another packed house this week. Really excited about this week's show. You guys are going to love it. Uh, joining me on the, the mic, as usual, is Ben Burgess. Hey, Adam. We've got Brianna Last. How's it going? And our guest for today's show is uh, somebody who's made several appearances on DPS, somebody you all know and love and admire. Deeply pumped to have him back on the show. Dr. Adolph Reed Jr. How you doing? Hey, it's good to be on. Good to see you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure's all ours. Uh, we're we're going to go into depth about one of the, uh, as they say, I think in the biz, uh, seminal articles uh, <laughs> that you've produced in your career that, that has a lot of, has got a lot of lessons to pass on about the thing that, that, that passes for the debate around, quote, race and class. Uh, we're going to get into that in the second half of today's show, get into the, into the weeds and nitty gritty. Uh, but we've got a lot of um, contemporary, more uh, pressing political matters to discuss before then. Uh, so just prefiguring things for the B side there. Uh, everybody else enjoy the A side for the next hour. A lot of shenanigans going on this week. Uh, we had a show uh, featuring Paul Prescott of Philly DSA talking about the importance of protecting the post office. And wouldn't you know it this week, a story broke by some plucky independent journalists discussing uh, a planned end run around the emerging movement for postal banking. It looks like there are some plans in place to provide J.P. Morgan Chase exclusive access to uh, some kind of banking operations inside of post offices, local post offices, which is a very conscious effort to uh, you know present the illusion of the democratization of finance and, and the increasing quote access right the access industrial complex if you will of neoliberalism to finance to, to people in impoverished communities but we all know as socialists this is an end run around postal banking postal banking is a pretty big deal i mean what, what's what's some of the promise of ben you've written about postal banking haven't you about the promise of that service in terms of opening up uh, the, the socialization, democratization of, of finance and, and services. Yeah, I mean, not, I mean, not extensively, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. It is, I mean, both certainly in the sense that the, the post office, you know, has historically, like we were talking about last week, been a massively important uh, source of uh, good union jobs. Uh, and this, and this would further expand that also, that it's it's a good way to to put out of business a lot of the predators who prey on the unbanked, you know, uh, payday, you know, like uh, pay cash checking uh, businesses, payday lenders, you know, people like that. And as well as doing those two things, uh, it would it would it's a way to plant the seed of a socialized uh, banking system, which could obviously be incredibly important, you know, for uh, for future possibilities for. A social democratic and socialist program. So, um, you know, for being something that in one way is relatively modest, right, there are plenty of places in the world that already have this. It's also something that really, I mean, actually, Bernie Sanders didn't talk about that much, right, but it was, it was part of his program. Uh, and it was a really important part of his program. And I've had the thought many times in the last, like, few weeks that, man, you know, if, if, uh, if Bernie was the presumptive nominee, or I guess he would be the nominee because he would have just accepted the nomination a couple nights ago uh, before we were recording this. Uh, if Bernie was the nominee right now, 
then the debate that we'd all be having about the post office was about you know this this radical scheme for postal banking. You know that's what that's what we'd be arguing about right now, uh, rather than do we need to have a post office at all? Mm. So Senator Sherrod Brown, you know, uh, progressive in the Senate, which is you know like saying. Um, it's the William F. Buckley line about uh, Harrington being the most important socialist America, right? That's the, yeah. it's like yeah. being the tallest building in Wichita, Kansas. Right, right. exactly. <laughs> uh, well, the, 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 you know, I don't know. No, nothing I could say is, uh, is worthy of uh, airing uh, to the public, so I'll shut my mouth. But anyway, Sherrod Brown being one of the more progressive senators, which is not uh, that much of an accolade these days, uh, was quoted as saying, what J.P. Morgan Chase wants to do looks like another attempt for big banks and corporations to, pri- to privatize our public infrastructure so their shareholders gain while working, working families suffer. Um, I mean, that's, that's just obvious and, and transparent cronyism uh, that's happening here um, in terms of what Paul Prescott shared for us uh, last week. You know, the post, post office has been central to the livelihoods of so many black workers across the country since, you know, what, Adolf, the, the early 1900s? Well, yeah, and I tell you, like I just got a, um, I just got an email from the singer John John Boutte, who did a rant about this on Facebook. He and one of his sisters, because uh, uh, their father came back from World War II, got a job in the PO, put ten kids through college, bought a house, and um, he and the letter just both kind of fuming about um, um, you know the attacks on the USPS, and I think that they're prepared to. Well, John's the one with the name, name that matters, but uh, you're uh, prepared to do something for the for, for the APWU campaign too, which is great. I mean, nice. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it, it's just such an extraordinary thing. I mean, it, it's a uh, uh, frankly, like I was just saying to a friend of mine a couple of days ago, like when I took my PhD qualifying exams in 1975, we had like four eight-hour written exams over eight days, and when I and if you failed one, you could take it again. If you failed two, you had to take them all again. And I walked out of the last one and I said to my buddy, you know what, if I fail anything, I'm not even going to bother. I'm just going down to the post office and take the civil service exam. <laughs> <laughs> as as uh, Paul totally always totally an likes anachronistic to, reference now, man. You know, Paul okay. always uh, likes to uh, note, uh, Paul Prescott likes to note, you uh-huh. know, Hollywood shuffle is that there's always work at the post office. That's right. Commercial they take. That's right. So, I mean, this is an end run around, you know, more uh, left progressive democratic socialist uh, cries for postal banking, which are just blatantly, you know, fucking obvious in terms of its necessity right. for yeah, just the, the everyday livelihoods of Americans. And it's something that can absolutely cross the divide, uh, this phony culture war divide in American politics and, 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 and people who, you know, are pulling levers for Trump uh, or, or Biden or Obama or anyone in between would come together and understand, recognize this as a necessary reform. You know, I think one of the most difficult things about this, we can uh, hopefully going to get on a reporter who broke that story uh, in the coming weeks to Good. talk more about it. Uh, it's not going away. It's not going anywhere. And, and the reason why is because regardless of what plays out in, in November, this is going to be in the Democratic Party establishment's playbook as well. Right. And all of the well-intentioned pushback by Sherrod Brown in the Senate is going to be snuffed out under the, <laughs> under the you know, uh, banner of, of Democratic Party unity. So let's turn there now with what we saw on display at the DNC. You know, Brianna and I, we were talking all fair. We admittedly couldn't tune in that much without uh, losing our lunch. But Ben, it's my understanding that you, you paid attention to the DNC at least for a couple nights. Yeah, yeah. I did like a live commentary thing at uh, the uh, 
Katie Halper for for one for one night of it. So I watched. Let's put it this way: I, I watched a minority of the convention, but more than I would have liked to. Uh, and one thing is just aesthetically, it's it's really is like the political equivalent of like uh, MLB games right now, where they have like cardboard cutout fans and like they pipe in fake crowd music because they were doing all of these weird things. Like when Kamala Harris finished her accepted speech. Uh, they did this like wall of like split screen zoom clapping uh, that was like more off putting than if they just not had <laughs> any sort of attempt to have anything like an audience. And like even the roll call vote, which would normally be like the charming, like goofy part of it, and still kind of was, but like there were all these things there. Like I remember one of the, I don't know, whatever it was, you know, one of the colonial holdings, you know, Guam or um, American Samoa. Like they had this like nice couple in between, but then on the opposite ends of the shot, they're like framed by these soldiers wearing masks and it looked like a hostage video. Uh, So uh, I I mean, just in terms of production values, it was not great. And of course, more substantively, the weirdest thing about, about it was that even relative to these kinds of things, there was so little politics at the DNC convention. So I mentioned Kamala Harris's acceptance speech. One of the standout lines was there is no vaccine for racism, right? That's one of the things that's going to stay in your head. It's like, okay, fair enough. But I'll bet Pfizer no va- down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if Pfizer came up with that vaccine, yeah, you're damn right they changed their tune on that. Uh, that's the- yeah, and it's like, okay, so... Well, was yeah. that tried to, like, reduce anti-racial bias or something? Or racial bias? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you have a racial yeah. bias problem? Try <laughs> race, race a cure. is approved by the FDA to treat uh, intrinsic uh, bias. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and okay. Fair, all right. So there is no, there's no vaccine for racial bias. Fair enough. There's not um, uh, the idea of one's kind of creepy, but you know, however the case may be like, but what are like, all right. So what's given that, right? Like, what's the plan, right? Like, like, like if, if, if we're going to be very, very focused on racial disparities, uh, then um, what is the preferred Democratic Party solution to all this? And you really didn't hear that at all, really. Well, ben, ben uh, from the bit that I saw, it seemed to me like the plan is to export calamari. <laughs> I did see that. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the mafia in Rhode Island, right? The that controls the calamari. Oh, perfect! That's absolutely perfect. So, I mean, like instead, it was just kind of all symbolism. Like, I mean, the most cringeworthy moment for me, at least, was uh, when Elizabeth Warren was speaking, and she literally had children's blocks behind her spelling out BLM. Yeah. It's just signal, signal, signal. That is Moses and the prophets. Little Mark's callback for you nerds out there. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, this is the this is the the racial diversity industrial complex on full display in 2020. It has perhaps reached its fruition. And I say fruition because, you know, notably absent in in all of this. Not not well. AOC had her little five minute, uh, uh, you know, pat. No, it wasn't even five minutes. It was, it was it was it was like eight one minute, right? Yeah. Like they gave her oh, one minute. Okay. Okay. Uh, to, I, saw, to, I thought I saw highlights, but that was actually the whole thing. I believe. Okay, I might be wrong <laughs> about this, but I believe what you saw was the whole thing. Like, oh, I don't know how you could have cut that into highlights. 
Holy shit. Yeah, I mean, you know, so notable in their absence, of course, AOC got her 60 seconds. She got a pat on the head to, to symbolically nominate Bernie Sanders. You know what? Good for her for doing that because she could have collapsed and, and given right. it to Pelosi and the rest of the agenda. Yeah. I feel justified for standing for AOC, at least a little bit that I have in the past. But that being said, more notable in their absence uh, were the uh, two women of color m- uh, Muslims in, in, in the House of Representatives. <laughs> Of course, uh, Ilan Amar, Representative Ilan Amar, and uh, Representative Rashida Tlaib. And, you know, of course, diversity is to be celebrated and, uh, you know, announced via children's blocks in the background of uh, speeches, but uh, only when it uh, matches a certain kind of ideological conclusion, right? Yeah, right. Absolutely. And um, I think that they, like, as I understand it, I think that even the AOC thing, I don't think that was even like a concession by the DNC. I think that was literally just like Bernie asking them, right? You know, if yeah. she could do the uh, if she could do the symbolic nominating, right? I so, think so it's procedure, the, right? So it's procedure that if you make it X, you know, f- this far uh, yeah. in, in the in the nomination race, that you are able to be formally nominated in front of the convention. Um, and so she, I guess, Bernie was the one who, who gave AOC the nod to do that. Um, yeah, right. That I wasn't think, even I think, a concession. That was a procedural yeah, right. necessity. Well, I think that's. I think that's the thing. I think right now they're kind of not giving concessions. Um, so, mm-hmm. I mean, the standout example we've talked about before in the show has been uh, the platform committee. That you know, you think, all right, like a party platform. If there's any place to make concessions, that would be it, because nobody's ever going to read it again. You know, politicians certainly aren't going to feel bound by it. Right. So it's it's such a nice, easy thing, you know, to give party activists. And this is often how both parties treat it. You know, it's like, oh, here, yeah. you know, you can eat platform. What, what, what uh, have you said? Uh, Adolf he goes into a filing cabinet, never to be seen or heard from again. Something like that. Oh, yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like there's there's all kinds of I mean, this is why, you know, like the I think that like the full scenario behind uh, the handmaid's tale is like spelled out in the Texas GOP party platform, but like, whatever, nobody's ever going to read it. Uh, <laughs> like, and so similarly you can, and often have, you know, historically had all kinds of concessions to the left put in, uh, you know, put in the democratic party platform. Why not? Right. You know, but like, even there, they're not willing to do it right now. They voted down Medicare for all in the platform, 125 to 36, even like Biden's alleged support for a public option for healthcare yeah. uh, has almost has pretty much completely disappeared already at the convention. I'd love uh, to look back on this, Adolf. You may have more insight on this uh, than anybody at this point. Uh, yeah, I haven't been following this stuff long enough. But but I'm, if I'm not mistaken, single payer was symbolically on the uh, the platform for for many years prior to Obama. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I mean it. it um, well. Through the, I'm trying to remember now, but I know like the AFL-CIO supported national health care for as long as uh, the Democrats did, as long as Ted, Ted Kennedy did. And, and I think when he stopped, I mean, they stopped. So that would have been like probably 1980. Although it is really interesting that even Obama, when he was laying out the plan for the ACA, he even he threw a few rhetorical mm. bones about that. He would yep. say things like, well, you know, if we were... If we were starting from scratch, I suppose single payer would be nice, but right, you know, and it, it was it was a pretty like as as empty gestures go, it was on the emptier side. Right. Uh, but at least he felt the need to do that, right? Whereas in 2016, Hillary was 
not saying what Obama was, right? Obama had been saying, oh, single payer would be great. We just can't, right? Like, you know, she was, she was making a basically Republican argument against it, you know, that it would, it would lead to tax increases for middle-class families. And that was pretty much the Biden line in, in the 2020 primary. In fact, he said since, since he secured the nomination with the coronavirus going on, the first time he was asked whether he would veto it, uh, he certainly sounded like he was saying yes. And it came back up again. I think an NPR reporter asked him just recently, like, hey, it seemed like you were indicating that if both houses passed this while you were president, you would veto this. Uh, you know, if this crossed your desk, you would veto it. You know, is that the case? And he just sort of said, well, it wouldn't cross my desk. Mm. Right. So, so like he wasn't even yeah. like he, he was conspicuously not <laughs> saying that he yeah. would sign it either. He knows he's got. He would have the Senate in his pocket at that point in time, right? And Pelosi and yeah, he's right. The House of Representatives in his pocket as well. They wouldn't embarrass him in that way if if he gets to the Oval Office. And so he was right. I mean, yeah, he's he's not wrong, but it's also oh, totally, yeah. Not not refuting your point. It's just like that's the that's the that's the cynicism of these people. It's like they know they've got this uh, under control, under wraps. Totally, but like it also feels like a lot of this is that not only are they not really given concessions right now, they feel like, and maybe in some ways they're right, you know, they feel like they've won thoroughly enough that yeah. they can symbolically rub it in the face of the left. Well, and I think that's absolutely right. And that's why, you know, I, I've been really frustrated with, like, people. It's a natural inclination on the left, but to try to figure out, uh, I mean, how we can keep the pressure on, uh, you know, how we can raise the issue, uh, I mean, how we can keep it out out in front of the public. Uh, let's talk about moving a Biden administration or campaign to the left. I just think it's all folly, right? It's like whistling past the graveyard. I mean, they've won and they know that they've won and they know what it means that they've won and they don't have to offer us anything and, and they're not going to. And they have a way, I mean, they have a high-minded way to rationalize it too, which is that, and this is what everybody knows, right? Who's done this for a while. you run to the left to get the nomination, and then you run to the right for the general election. And I'm convinced that a lot of them convinced themselves that a Sanders nominee couldn't win, and so forth and so on. Uh, and I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, uh, yeah, so I think you're absolutely right about that. I, I, I mean, there's a, um, like when I was a teenager, the guys just uh, used to talk about a uh, uh, badass, right? I mean, that not not giving up anything but bubble gums and hard time, and he's always fresh out of bubble gum. And I think that's that that's kind of where they are now, right? And they know yeah. it. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I also understand the tendency of leftists to you know, want to keep doing the Potemkin protest stuff, but mm-hmm. right. I mean, let's historicize this, right? You yeah, know, we're going to do a actually, lot of this. We're yeah. going to historicize a lot in, in the second half of the show here when we go back and talk about your classic essay and combining history and theory and all the rest of it. And, but you know, in in the you know in, in that I read uh, that stuff again this afternoon. God damn, it's dense. <laughs> Isn't it great? The older you get, the less patience you have for that shit. I'm in the same. I'm in the same boat, Adolf, and I'm I'm half your age. But uh, yeah, I just I don't have time for that shit. It's still it's still fascinating. We're gonna I go. Think there, it was denser but. than I was, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we'll need but a fresh defend herself. We'll need a fresh glass of scotch to uh, to get yeah. there. But we'll get we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll we'll make it there. Uh, but uh, but yeah, in the meantime. You know, historicizing this is that, you know, in the days of Teddy Kennedy and some of these other guys, Tip O'Neill and all the rest of them, they give, they tip their hat, as you said, Ben, to single payer as a way to sort of appease the unions, right? In terms of this being a real, um, 
uh, a real demand coming from labor in that mm -hmm. moment. Uh, but they knew it, eh, it wasn't going to get enough legs to go anywhere. Uh, the business you know, union is, uh, we talked about with Carl Rosen, UE uh, general president last week. Uh, they knew they'd fall in line when it counted. Uh, and then, of course, in the neoliberal era, they could tip their hat to single payer because they, they knew damn well it wasn't going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. It's only now where it's got legs and, and social support that they've got to seemingly backtrack and, and regress on these more progressive, seemingly progressive rhetorical aims because they know it's got a chance. And so this kind of this way of uh, sort of um, seemingly like moving backwards as a Democratic Party is a result of the credible threat that's, that's growing in society, uh, you know, in favor of, of Medicare for all. And so again, it's at least enough game. that they've, it's at least enough to spook them. Right. Yeah. That, like that they yeah. feel like at this point they right. need to like really send a message that no, none of that's going to happen. Shut up about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there, there, I mean, again, yeah. you know, I could be gloom and doom all day. That's my natural inclination, but I like to provide the Pollyanna report whenever I get a chance. <laughs> Yeah. Well, this is too a bit like um, when Cyprus was elected in Greece and he made his pitch to the ECB. Mark Dudzik and I were talking about it, and Mark said, Well, like they've got two options, right? It's like you're going to Polly Walnuts, and he <laughs> will either extend the loan, and which, which works for them because they collect more juice off you in the long term, or he'll opt that it's a better business practice given the moment to break both your arms. So when you go, mm -hmm. To the lunchroom, like everybody will see what happened. And that's mm -hmm. clearly what the ECB decided to do to Greece. And, you know, frankly, you know, I think, well, 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 I've been saying, saying this a bit now, too. I'm going to try to write it soon that you know, as you look around the globe, right, it might just be that neoliberalism has gotten to a point where it can't deliver enough to enough people on a consistent basis that it can uh, be legitimized or, or, or can sustain legitimacy as a small d democratic order. If that's the case, there's really only two directions you can step off in. And one is authoritarian populism, mm -hmm. and the other is uh, or, or authoritarian neoliberalism. It doesn't even have to be populist. Go ask Bolsonaro. But, um, but the other is like a serious struggle for, or trying to mobilize for a serious struggle for social democratic reform or, or, or government and the public good, if you want to call it that. And if that's where we are, well, four years of Biden or eight years of Biden-Harris muddling through will just set the stage for a more competent version of Trump. Uh, it all for you, Mr. Sopranos, Phil? Oh, oh, yeah, totally, man. <laughs> well, I tell you why. Like the first season, I was still living in uh, Chicago, and, and it just appealed to my East Coast homesickness. Yeah. But yeah, no, no, I think it was great. And I think it's the second, second best. Or, well, I shouldn't even say second, but what, one of the two best things ever on television. What was the second? I got, I got to know. Uh, oh, it's got to be The Wire. I was yeah. going to say, it better be oh, The yeah, Wire. I was if it was The Wire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It better be The Wire. That's kind of spoiled, spoiled watching TV for me since then. Yeah. Yeah, right. right. No, I mean, you're not wrong. It was a golden age of uh, television, of premium, yeah. uh, cable, premium cable channels. I think your point about the cutting off the limbs uh -huh. so that everyone yeah. at the cafeteria can see is such a good point because I feel like this whole convention was a performance to show progressives right. and the left that to embarrass right. them, to discipline them yeah. into feeling completely like the Democratic Party is not right. their party and, you know, go home. 
you know, go back, go back to, to where you came from. And I just, well, I feel oh, like yes, that was. Come back out and vote, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But just, you know, the reaching out to Republicans. It's like, we care more about the Republicans right. than we care about the progressives, yeah. uh, our own party. Um, and then even, you know, uh, David Sirota reported on this, but the top Biden aide, Ted Kaufman, who admitted that the pantry might be bare by the mm. time that we um, come into office. And so we're not even going to maybe even make good on our promise to have a relief package and to actually. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, you know, well, yeah, I'd love to do it for you. You know, money's tight. You know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You know, right. uh, one of those. Yeah, man. The Democrats are just doing the deficit. Discourse. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, the, well, you know, I mean, that's the thing about Biden, right? From the very beginning, like all he said, Brianna, during the campaign, as you know, was I'm that guy who can talk to Republicans. Yeah. Right. I, and and I went to high school with some guys in the building trades. Mm. Right. Um, yeah. But I mean, that was it. So it's not like this is a surprise. And I mean, you know, like a lot of us, everybody on this panel uh, I guess we're a panel or this show. Show sounds better because panel feels <laughs> feels more like a game show, and I speak in the dishwasher at the end of it. But but um, <laughs> uh, uh, but everybody on the show knows that that the Democrats made clear from the very beginning in 2019 that there's no way they were going to let Bernie Sanders get the nomination, and what that meant was they also made clear that they were more frightened of the left the weak ragtag ass left with no political capacity <laughs> than, than they are of, of, of uh, Trump. And they'd rather risk living with uh, a second Trump term than having to face up to um, a Sanders campaign for the presidency. And, and that just kind of says where this stuff is now. Uh, and, and I guess in retrospect, you know, I didn't think about it at the time because uh, like everybody else, I was, you know, what wondering if Biden was just going to fall off the stage or whatever, but but he was the perfect candidate because you know yeah. all that bullshit about uh, John McCain's my best best friend and I can appeal to the right. I mean, you remember shit by what February, early March already around the time of uh, oh no, it had to be earlier than that because it was around the time of, of you know, Nevada. The the talking head commentary started to be basically calling for you know what I summarized as a government of national reconciliation or national salvation, bipartisan, mm. you have Republicans in the cabinet to show, to heal the country. And of course, that's what healing means. So, I mean, here we are. But but the thing about it is, you know, if Trump gets another four, four years, like I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not working on another version of vote for the lying, neo, uh, lying neoliberal warmonger. But if Trump gets another four four years, then there might not be any coming back from it. Um, but it's hard to have any enthusiasm voting for the other guy, knowing that uh, there are forces uh, and tendencies that a Biden-Harris victory will strengthen that don't mean us any good either. And also threaten, uh, I mean, as I said, to you know clear the way for President Haley. Right. Like you imagine like a <laughs> Haley Harris. Uh, Harris Haley would be bad uh, enough. Yeah. Well, true. True. But I mean, well, uh, yeah. And look, you know what? I mean, it could even run as a as of a national reconciliation. Yeah. Ticket. I was going to say national unity government right there. Right. That's, that's yep. all the, the horror shows. Two women, need. both of partial South, South Asian extraction. 
Yeah. Right. Well, women are good at making peace, right? Yeah, that's, no, that's, no, that's no, right. That's no, right. No, that's no, always no, the, no, making no, peace no, and sending drones no, where you need and uh, putting no, uh, innocent, yeah. uh, innocent poor black man behind bars and bang, beating her chest over it. Yeah, I think like you know, um, what, what I, look again. I mean, I mean we, do, we, we do have to have. I mean, like, like, yeah. I mean, it's it's a horrible situation. I mean, I think you do still have to vote for the lion neoliberal warmonger, right? Yeah. You know, like it just, it just can't be a, it just like the, the argument for that can't be, if it's going to be honest and compelling, it can't be because there's some great concession we're going to ring out of them. No, that's right. Because clearly there's not, right? Like right. what's yeah. The, like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, they're right. not even pretending that like maybe there will be at this yeah. point, you know, it just has to be, this is just this like miserable defensive choice to like preserve what's right. left of, you know, public sector unions and all of that. Right. But what I have to yeah, say, though, again, I'm, I'm, you just need to have a bumper sticker like sometimes you just have to clean the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Put on some gloves, grab the bleach, right. hold your nose. And that be part of the like the liberal sign that's like love is love. What, like what, black lives matter. Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> Hold hands and projectile vomit together. Look, if we all drink different color Kool-Aid before we go vote, we could, we could projectile vomit in a rainbow uh, uh, pattern. It'd be woke as fuck. Uh, so you know, what I was going to say, though, is like, look, I'm going to provide the Pollyanna moment for a second. The Pollyanna okay. segment here. And, 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 and like... I think, Brianna, you're absolutely right to suggest that the Democratic Party establishment believes that they're rubbing our, the, the, the left, our collective nose in their victory. But I'd suggest that, you know, it's like it's like when your neighbor's dog shits on the carpet, uh, but then you take your dog and you rub your dog's nose and your neighbor's dog's shit because you thought it shit. That's not our shit, baby. That diversity crap is not our shit. All right. It, it, it shouldn't be our shit. Right. I mean, they're sort of saying, like, look, you guys proclaim to be the ones who can take, you know, who can bring justice, who can bring diversity, who can who can bring equity, who can bring access. All of these neoliberal buzzwords, things that we never said, but things we shouldn't have ever said if we uh-huh. did fucking wrong. And so what I would suggest is that, like, you know, while they're over here spiking the football uh, with these hollow gestures, if we get our act together, it's a big if given the state of the left sometimes. I think that we can still prevail if we focus on the material and concrete needs of the masses of people. I mean, you know, uh, and, and, and that this, this performance, uh, the spiking of the football is going to ring empty and hollow um, in the grand scheme. But but that's a big if, you know, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. You know, that's why we bring you on when we can, Adolf, whenever we can, to talk about getting to the heart of this hypocrisy around the the kind of racial indulgences <laughs> industrial complex. Uh, you know, Brianna, you brought it to my attention that uh, there's some pieces that have come out recently where, you know, in the wake of the George Floyd murder, uh, you know, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars have been funneled into the, this uh, nonprofit complex, which is pushing all sorts of neoliberal diversity narratives uh that that are going to be detrimental to the prospects of the left going forward so i mean that's that's the thing we got to fight it's a big if and it's a big uphill uh, it's, a, it's you know, we're looking up uphill at mount everest but it's doable yeah i think the other day jack dorsey who's the ceo of twitter donated 10 million dollars to anti-racism research um really other anti-racism research they're gonna try to find the vaccine 
<coughs> race a cure. Try race a cure. Yeah. Symptom. You know I mean? Yeah, uh, I mean, because 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 maybe I'm you know maybe I'm just like too simple minded about this, but it like it's it seems like if the if the long and the short of it is racial bias is bad, and uh, I, I'm not totally clear on what the research you know like 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 what does this look like you know when you're when you're researching you know anti-racism side yeah. effects may include restless careerism syndrome uh yeah i think what that's else? a lot of, i think that's a key symptom yeah. of the, 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 the <laughs> disorder <laughs> yeah well well i don't know if you've you've read any of it uh nibriana but uh you know jonathan khan um a law professor who did a great book on Vital a number of years ago, a couple of years ago, um, uh, just did a book on, uh, that, that's a critique of implicit bias. Mm. And I haven't been able to look at it yet, but I've been waiting to get my hands on it. Yeah. Well, what's funny about the implicit bias stuff is that, you know, this is a hugely contentious topic in my field. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't accept the implicit association test, which is often used um, to measure implicit bias. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and the vital story is so crazy because that was a, a post hoc marketing scheme. Right. Tell, tell the vital right. story. I, I believe, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I had Jesse Single on a couple of years ago to talk about the vital story, but I don't expect everyone to have heard that. Adolf, do you want to take it away? I can't remember. It was a it was a, a heart or blood pressure medication. Uh, it was a heart medication, uh, mm-hmm. a blood thinner that had been developed uh, and had shown and had failed clinical trials. And um, I'm kind of compressing the middle of it here because it's been a while since I've looked at it. But uh, the punchline is that um, I'm blocking on the company now. Uh, it's, uh, it's not one of the major ones, but like a triple A minor league player in, uh, in big pharma somehow fashioned a relationship with the Association of Black Cardiologists who uh, supported a study and some trials to determine whether the drug what was effective in black men. How they came to that, I can't remember, but if this were a carnival, somebody would be screaming shenanigans, right? But what I do recall, though, is that the main clinical trial or the main study controlled for class by, oh, yeah, there you go. Oh, wow, Jack did that too? Wow. I had to pull up the screen. Here you go. So it's our, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Adolf. This, I'm just oh, yeah. no, no, I'm no, laughing no. my ass yeah, off yeah. over here. It's Arbor Pharmaceuticals. This had by right, right. And I just, yeah. I was, I was doing some research as the producer slash host of the show here. I had no idea that Shaq, Shaq was on. Yeah, you guys, so for the listeners out there who aren't on the zoom call, first of all, you guys are really missing out. Second of all, yeah, you got Shaquille O'Neal in a pop-up ad. As soon as you go to buy Wow. It says Shaquille gets real about heart failure. <laughs> yeah. So that this is so he's endorsing the ripoff in insurance and the mammy made pain treatment. Wow, yeah. Shaq. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, how much child support do you have to pay? But anyway, <laughs> outstanding. So I mean, the key study controlled for class by asking the participants how many years school they completed and how they generally felt about their lives. So on that basis, in the Bush administration. They actually applied for and got a patent, not not without contestation from some civil rights groups, because this was the first drug in the history of the FDA that's patented for specific ethnic groups and that ethnic group only. And it's kind of a, a, a slant association, but I learned just before I got on the Zoom call that 
Halle Berry in her custody fight. And okay, people do all kinds of, well, but a custody fight is like a bar fight so, or street fight. So you just look for whatever brick you can pick up and throw it. But the brick that she picked up was the, fuck, was the one drop rule. So she's claiming that she accepts the one drop rule such that the fact that she's half black means that her kid, who I guess technically would be either a quadroon or a macaroon, I forget which, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but that the kid, by, by virtue of the one drop rule, should um, be in her, her custody for racial purposes. So I thought, okay, well, this is like, no, so, so like she's bidding to be the anti-Plessy now, right? Uh, but anyway, so vital um, this, and I know Brianna and I have been passing back and forth uh, on little tidbits on the return of race medicine for several weeks now, and it just seems like there's a new one every day. So yeah, well, yeah, that, that one drop rule too reminds me. I think we we can start talking a little bit about um, the caste argument because okay. uh, the endogamy <laughs> argument I feel like is is there as well. Yeah. Uh, before we do that, can I jump in? I, there was a news story that came out. Before, well, I want to get to this because the cast of set fa- fascinating. But I'd be remiss in failing to mention here is a news story that came out that they're reporting that a COVID-19 vaccine might be delayed because the – fuck, you guys wait for this shit. Because the uh, sample of participants in these trials is not diverse enough. We don't have enough black people in this sample. Not enough black blood, you see, uh, which is apparently a thing uh, <laughs> in opposition to all of, of course it was, biological it was. science. Right. Uh, it, it's astonishing that, that wow. we are still falling for a 1920s era racial science when it comes to developing a vaccine for COVID-19, which these institutions will be under an immense amount of pressure not to release into the wild until it has enough black and Hispanic blood. Well, I don't know if you guys noticed, but Bernie actually, and this was kind of disappointing though. I understand why, how he felt mousetrapped maybe, but Bernie signed on to a letter from a bunch of Congress people, uh, I think to the FDA or maybe to uh, the big pharmaceutical companies demanding that they make their, or that they make that uh, that they commit to having maximum diversity, ethnic um, group diversity in in their clinical trials for COVID nineteen. But it just kind of underscores that people that um, you know so much of you know even when leftists say, yeah, well, of course I know that race is a social construction. It's like just that, right? It's like um, you know, empty gesture, because then the next thing that follows it is, and look, I mean, how many of us, both on the panel or and in the audience, have had the experience of friends or family members who would say, you know, I never believed that gender differences were hardwired until I had kids. And I see right. that Rachel always goes for the frilly shit, and Brad always goes for the trucks. And, and think, so this is hardwired to you, you fucking moron? I mean... They live in society. You aren't the only contact that, that they have every day. They watch the dumbass cartoons. They go to school right there in daycare. I mean, what the fuck? Sorry. Yeah. The Neanderthals had trucks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
PowerPoint. <laughs> Look, Adolf, you've been canceled so many times in the last six months. I didn't think you could do it again, but here we are. Here we are. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, although, I mean, maybe just to, just to pedantically, you know, spell out the obvious, um, like I, you know, I would have thought, right. Like that they, you know, that if you, if you think that, um, you know, that racism is bad, right. You know, that's why we need the vaccine and you think that sexism is bad and, you know, and all these other things, then, um, you know, then the entire point, Right in a way is that this is that uh, this is an arbitrary way of uh, of sorting people that you know that there there's no there's the you know there's no deep you know hardwired uh, you know there's no deep hardwired distinction here you know there's the uh, that um, that this the, you know this isn't you know that that race is not a genetic uh, category would be pretty basic to the enterprise. But if you think if you think we can't have a COVID, you know that you know that that uh, that the trial group you know has to include people, number, you know, not just people who already have it and people who don't, which you think would be the relevant distinction, you know, but right. Uh, right. for the, right. the different right. control groups, right. but people who have who fall into different races, right? Uh, it's pretty hard to explain that. As you know, as a so, like, like I, I want to know what the social constructivist explanation of why that would be necessary would be. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, look, man, I tell you what, I mean, this is exactly how I happened to get into this game in the first place. Like when, when, uh, so what was it? Prop? No, not, um, not prop, prop two hundred nine, but the California Civil Rights Initiative thing, right? Eight. Uh, around, prop, prop eighteen. Is that what it was? So eight, eight, eight or eight something, man. Yeah. It's been a little while. Um, um, I mean, all I remember is is uh, Ward, Ward Connolly, but but I learned just in passing that um, that the proposition called for prohibiting the state from collecting data by race, except for two instances: mm-hmm. law, law enforcement and public health. So yeah. when I read read that, I thought, well, that's exactly ass backward, right? I mean, that's <laughs> right. It should be exactly the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. So I got all fired up and thought I would write an op-ed piece for one of the big California dailies. But yeah. since I'm not a John McWhorter-like douchebag, the first thing that I did was I went to the opposition website you know, to see what they were doing. And I was crestfallen, right? Uh, because on the public health page, it was all about how if, if this thing passes, we won't be able to monitor the diseases that, that only we get. So... I knew then, well, okay, I can't write this op-ed because that would be like courting uh, you know, the wrong people. But, but it's just as you say, Ben, I mean, you would think that, you know, all this racism, social construction stuff would like lead you, wouldn't lead you to anyway, think, okay, well, well, we got to have our phenotypes, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, represented. But I think one thing, and this just occurred to me, but I think one thing, that, that it underscores is the extent to which, you know, the migration of race from biology to culture was really just a U-turn, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, Walter Michaels made this point a long time ago in talking about cultural pluralism, that, that, that it's the pluralism that turns culture into biology, right? So mm-hmm. that you, because culture then becomes a property that lives within the individual. And that's the only way it can ever make sense to talk about losing your culture, going to find, find, mm-hmm. find, find your culture. And as Walter said, so, so by this 
um, you know, from this ontological stance, right? He says, no, I'm not Jewish because I do Jewish things. I do Jewish things because I'm Jewish. And that's how you can make sense of, of stuff like, you know, well, what's her name? Courtney from, from Ancestry.com, like the 23andMe, like the light-skinned, freckled-faced girl who, mm-hmm. who, who finds out from her D- DNA package. And uh, I'd like to get her email because I have some stock I want to sell her. But, um, <laughs> um, but um, she finds out from her um, DNA pie chart that she's like 11% uh, you know, descended from 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 some population in West Africa where the women were warriors. That's what she and Ancestry.com imagine. What I assume it means is that it's a kinship uh, or it's a group that has a kinship system that's matrilineal, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that turns into fucking Xena, right? But but <laughs> but she like determines yeah, that that's yeah. where she gets her fierce and aggressive nature. Uh, but like then you look at the pie chart and she's like 11% that and she's like 14% Scottish and 12% Irish and I mean they had like some warrior queens and stuff yeah. too but but like, all this shit is just couldn't, have, couldn't have been William Wallace by any chance it had to have been <laughs> uh, you know uh, West African Xena warrior princess mythology right yeah <laughs> I mean Walter's point Walter Ben Michael's point is absolutely crucial here because if you break this down logically you know you've got culture then it has to inhere in a subject right. if it inheres in a subject you anybody who's taken a, a philosophy 101 course and ben set me straight if i'm fucking this up because uh, I, I was mostly drunk in undergrad uh you know uh then these properties have to inhere in the object in an ontological sort of structure in a way and such that you know, it's, it's 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 in essence then essentialist it's it's essential it's an essential right. property of uh of a thing of, of a thing of a human a person a subject and therefore it's something that then you know, it inheres in a subject, but then it becomes something that, that's bigger than the subject. That right. takes, and, the, and this is where, surprise, dot, 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 race takes on a life of its own. Right. Doesn't right. it? Right. But that's, that's, not right. a, that's not a result of the kind of historical cultural di- dimension. That's a result of the, of the ideational apparatus that you've constructed to explain the thing in the fucking first place. In right. other words, uh, academia uh, becomes, you know, Frankenstein's monster and starts to walk amongst the rest of us and, and haunt us in our fucking dreams. Uh, uh, yeah. This is, this no, is totally. academia run amok. Yeah, totally. And I, mean, and I mean, that's also the only context in which a notion like cultural appropriation makes, mm. makes sense. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, it's like the exact opposite of like an enlightened anthropological understanding of what culture is, right? Culture is about plasticity and, and, and diffusion, right? But this notion... And then where does it stop, right? I mean, you want to say, okay, well, put that fucking saxophone down then. You're not supposed to be playing that. That's a white man's instrument, right? Uh, I think it was invented on a cruise ship, wasn't it? But, uh, <laughs> but it, yeah, but but you can't... Yeah. And that's yeah, what no. the Smithsonian... Um, oh, sorry, Ben. But the Smithsonian, uh, uh, you know, controversy uh, that Adolf, you and I had been talking about, where they had that sign that were like sort of like features of whiteness right. and like logical thinking right. was, was right. a yeah. of whiteness yeah. culture and like yeah i think i read that well but well i tell you what though like it never occurred to me until just just this very moment but there is a sort of continuity it's not the smithsonian but you know madison grant was a patron of the museum of natural history 
and this is like straight out of Madison Grant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it really yeah, is. I, I mean, I mean, I also like on the other end of it uh, the idea that okay, so because I, I think the like pseudo sophisticated response to some of this is oh, like cultural appropriation is only a problem when it's uh, people who are members of oppressor cultures appropriated, right. you know, from, from oppressed cultures. Right. Uh, and that's bad, right? You know, you can appropriate all you want in the other direction, but then it's also weird because even with the, the taboo only running in that direction, I mean, it seems like what that means is, okay, so, so if you're going to be non-appropriative as a white person, you should only, um, you know, read books written by white people and listen to music, right. you know, made by white people. Right. And this, this starts to very quickly sound like, um, you know, like a woke version of what Richard Spencer would want you to do. Yeah. When you're so woke, you oopsie and do a racism. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. This feeds into Brianna. What I, what I rudely cut you off about this completely ridiculous uh, d- delay to, and it looks like an inevitable delay to a COVID-19. Y'all come on, get your shit together. All right. I just want to go to a bar and drink some good fucking scotch, uh, eat a meal that I didn't cook. Get this fucking vaccine on the market, okay? Let's not let this stupid race science get in the way, all right? That's the TLDR. Brianna, I really interrupted you. You wanted to get into a really interesting uh, discussion about caste, race as caste. Yeah, well, maybe we should back up a little bit and introduce the the series that we're embarking yeah, on, yeah, yeah. Uh, which you're inaugurating, Adolf, which seems very fitting. Um because this series is really inspired by so much of your work. And also, um, you know, you've taught a a black political thought course uh, to your graduate students at Penn um, and I'm sure other universities as well, but we really wanted to provide some historical context for a lot of the debates that currently exist surrounding race, as well as, just looking at the past and trying to not necessarily import a presentist mindset and see how those historical debates unfolded and really to see if we can do the corny thing of, you know, not repeating history and (laughs) um, seeing if we can actually learn from it. So I'm really pleased to have you on and, um, I'm sure you've been introduced many times on the show, but just for listeners who may, this may be their first time, um, you know, you're a professor emeritus of political science at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, specializing in studies of racial and economic inequality. And you're also an organizer for Medicare for All um, in South Carolina. And hopefully we can maybe even talk about some of the political implications of some of these debates. So yeah, Adam, you- Good luck stopping him. (laughs) <laughs> Good luck stopping him and talking about the political implications. Sorry, Abby. <laughs> I could be here. I mean, I could listen to you talk all, all night. Um, yeah. so I've got an instinct. I appreciate we could all learn from it. Yeah. Turn these heady theoretical shit into uh, practical uh, on the ground implications. Yes. Yeah, so I do want to get us to talking a little bit about the uh, the piece that you wrote called Unraveling the Relation of Race and Class in American Politics and the Debate that Unfolded. Uh, subsequent to it, which I assume was planned. I assume that dialogue was planned. Okay. Um, I do. And I, I think it's hitting on a lot of what we've just discussed. Um, but before we do that, why don't we just quickly talk about the cast question? Cause I think, I think it's really interesting in light of uh, Isabel Wilkerson's recent book cast, the origins of our discontent. It instantly became a New York times bestseller 
uh, it's fourth on the list and it was added to Oprah's book club. She's done the circuit of, you know, all of the NPR uh, shows. She was on Fresh Air, I believe. So tell us about the cast argument and historicize a little bit for us. Yeah, just to be clear, that's C-A-S-T-E, right? Like most people in America are, are introduced to this and like, you know, the the, Indi- the, the Indian caste system, right? The system of status that, uh, you know, um, comes from one's position of birth, right? In one's family. Uh, so just so we're clear about that. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, first of all, let me say I'm really happy to be on and I'm really um, honored to kick off this series. I think the series is great. I mean, I think it's really important. I mean, one of the things a lot of us uh, have tried to do is um, to instantiate uh, and argue for through instantiating um, an historical materialist approach to the study of black, black intellectual history and black politics. And and I think from the looks of the tentative lineup, that's that's going to be the orientation of a lot of the series. And I think it's a really important um, you know, perspective uh, you know, to get out there to people. Um, uh, uh, I mean, to give people an occasion to chew on, right? Sort of putting history in history, because one of, uh, or putting historicity like in, in, in discussion of intellectual history. Uh, you know, that said, I mean, um, I, I connect with the caste um, arguments um, through the history of um, interwar or, or so social science uh, in in interwar periods, especially in so- sociology and anthropology, um, and because um, that um, around the well, let me back up. Um, one, one of the entailments of the Great Migration was um, growing concern among um, um, the big foundation sector, which was already big and a sector, mm-hmm. uh, about what all this, this, this meant, how to think about changing patterns of r- race relations as, as the Negro problem um, becomes uh, you're not simply a Southern problem anymore um, on what to do. Right. Can, can you qu- very quickly uh, define the Great Migration, historicize it? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, um, what happened basically was that as, um, as um, large-scale industrial production in um, the Northeast, but especially the industrial mid- Midwest, uh, both um, accelerated on the eve of World War One and uh, and had access to its uh, massive stream of um, low, low-skilled, low-wage workers coming in from Europe, disrupted by the war. Um, industrial recruiters uh, and others um, turned southward uh, to uh, recruit blacks uh, up, up, up from the Jim Crow South, um, you know, to work in um, industrial plants and and. Um, one version of the kind of stupid debates that academics have, um, you, know, you know, not so much historians as others, but was the extent to which the Great Migration was driven by push factors, people wanting to get away from Jim Crow, mm-hmm. or, 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 or by pull factors, people wanting um, expanded economic opportunity, which was also expanded political opportunity. And the only response to it is it's a stupid debate. They wanted both. Um, uh, and but but the spirit of the Great Migration was 
until it was reinvent or rediscovered as like moving from one horrible den of racism to another horrible den, just as horrible den, den of racism. Um, a, a definitive statement to me of the Great Migration was in uh, James Grossman's classic book on it, uh, that I'm blocking on, uh, Land of Freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, where he quotes a guy like in Chicago saying, I would rather be a lamppost in Chicago than the king of Mississippi. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, that's all you need to know about the Great Migration. That just explains the whole, whole, whole thing. Well, uh, women, there are a lot more women and they're probably a lot prettier in Chicago. Uh, if that tells you anything culturally about, you know, what it's like to be a young man in Chicago versus a sharecropper in Alabama. I think that's probably right. Yep. Yep. Be real about so, that. So, but anyway, like, so, I mean, this is like a changing, uh, I mean, demographic moment, right? Uh, because um, to that point, um, since, um, you know, Booker T. Washington basically invented the idea of race relations uh, at the end of the 1890s, um, it had been um, you know, generally conceived as a Southern problem or, or a Southern question, right? The Negro problem had, was a Southern one. So anyway, I mean, there were a number of foundation-funded initiatives over the 20s and 30s, uh, you know, more or less ingenuously in, in, intended, uh, but, uh, but in general, like, I mean, directed toward trying to make sense of, <clears throat> um, of actual, of, of, of what um, appropriate approaches like the race relations ought to be and to understanding um, inequality. The, a main competitor to the caste school was uh, was the Chicago sociology ethnic cycle um, theory, which was uh, a vast improvement over um, uh, um, biodeterminism. Um, but what Park, uh, but uh, no, Robert Park, who who had also been uh, Booker T. Washington speechwriter, Tuskegee, uh, and his colleagues contended was that there's like um, several stages to the ethnic cycle, right? Like an immigrant group comes in, you, you bump up against, um, you know, another group, there's competition, conflict, um, right. and then eventually assimilation. Right. So, so the ethnic cycle uh, theory school, what have you had the uh, advantage of displacing the more kind of biologically determined, like, yeah. well, you know, the blacks end up in the ghettos because they're right. well, a little dumber than whites. Right. right. I mean, right. let's be honest. That was the theory, the right. theory quote, ethnic, right. uh, you know, cycle theory sort of just places them in the larger context of what we're all familiar now. That, oh, well, you know, the, the, the Italians came in and then the Polish right. came in and then, right. so it, yeah, it, it and sort like of essentializes and everybody right. else got to be white, but, but, right. um, yeah. So, allegedly. so the caste school took, took shape in the thirties and forties, people like Lloyd Warner, um, Allison Davis, um, who was like a black, so a black anthropologist actually. Uh, and, and and to be honest, like I know the caste school more from its critics than from its proponents. Like I just read um, Warner's um, methodological postscript to uh, black uh, you know, to black, uh, to Black Metropolis last week, but I'm but but I'm committed to going back and like reading a bunch of that caste caste stuff now that uh, Isabel Wilkerson has kind of reached into the dustbins of history and pulled it out. Um, but, uh, but 
but but a key so um i'm more than happy to pass the baton to Anya Brianna if you want to talk about it more uh, but i will say 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 this that the main criticisms of the cast school and that largely uh, or, uh, some of the sharpest came from uh, Oliver Cromwell Cox um um who was also a product of uh, the doctoral program at the University of Chicago. Um, but like his, his argument was that what appealed about the cast interpretation, well, well, he had two basic arguments. One was that I got India wrong or, or, or that the basis for comparison with Indian cast, cast system wasn't there, right? And he, 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 he stressed the differences and I confess that in uh, years ago, when I read the massive cast cast class and race, I just kind of read through all that stuff because the cast cast school had been defeated. Um, I didn't know anything about the cast, uh, you know, about the cast system in India. I thought I was a little concerned that Cox's construction of it was too formalistic, right? But anyway, but the other criticism was that what appealed about the caste school, and I think this is pertinent to, 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 um, you know, to Isabel, was that it made political economy and history disappear, or and the specifics of American history I mean, disappear. So, which I guess says something about uh, a basis for its popularity at this moment. Um, somebody, uh, so Todd, Todd, Todd Cronin is actually writing something about uh, Cox and her book, uh, I think for Jacobin, um, and uh, he mentioned to me that um, she she tries to engage with with Cox, but but not but not really right. I mean, it's a classic a surface thing. surface level, probably yeah. a formalization of a formalization. <laughs> <laughs> Where well, you try, no. you, you, your reading of Cox is more of a historical materialist reading of a formalized kind of a treatment, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Well, yeah, yeah, but like, I mean, what she does is, I mean, I, 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 I'm you're all familiar with DSA. She attributes um, a, a position to Cox that's not exactly the position that Cox takes, mm. and then, uh, and is in fact a simplification of the position that he takes, and and then she dismisses. I'll punt to you, Brianna. You have more to say about cast? No, yeah, I was actually going to add to that. I mean, that was all great. And I I was going to add that she does actively engage with them, which is interesting because, um, you know, you would think uh, that that stuff was, you know, like you said, relegated to the dustbins of Mm -hmm. history. But it's made a comeback. And I think what's also interesting about that is it is actually what leads us to this debate that you had because it the the caste concept points to the problems with analogy mm-hmm. the problems with ideal right. types right which you discuss right. uh so i actually think that's a really nice segue to talk about this okay, piece cool. i know this piece was really formative for me in my thinking and speaking of sort of caricatures, it totally dispels any myth about what you think <laughs> about the relation between race and class. Mm-hmm. So let's dig into it. First, I'd love to just hear you talk about how the debate came about yeah. and what inspired you to write. Yeah, I'm trying piece. to remember now. Um, Great question, Brianna. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think. Well, I think this is what 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 happened. Like I had started working on a grant proposal for um, for um, a Carnegie Scholars of Distinction uh, program, like a special grant was, um, that that was enough money for me to apply or, or to get myself to apply for um, and to take the shot. And I presented um, a um, a preliminary um, draft of the, of the mission statement uh, from the proposal at um, a seminar at at the new school. It was like an in-house, um, um, a brown bag thing, bag thing. And you were uh, teaching at the Diane, new school at the time, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, six years. Mm-hmm. And and um, you know, Diane Davis, who who was the who who was the managing editor or or, or the editor of um, Power Politics and Society, which was an annual that uh, Maurice Zeitlin edited um, mm-hmm. along with other people, um, was at the seminar, and she asked me if I would um, r- write that 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 mission statement up um, for a symposium that they would like to do on race and class. And they did two or three of those, actually. They did one with uh, Louis Vacant, and uh, mm-hmm. she did this great piece called, called The Logic of the Trial. Uh, and she, he and Ann Stoller and like, um, I think David Rodiger even, like, uh, they were part of that. that one. And they did another one like that, too. And I can't remember how they uh, you know, recruited the people whom, whom they recruited, um, I didn't know what um, I knew Zeitlin by reputation, of course, uh, and I knew Stephen Gregory uh, a little bit, and um, and, and I liked his essay. Um, yeah. So I mean, that's where it came from. Yeah, I I, I actually totally I really, inauspicious. So I mean, let's talk a little bit about the problems you were trying to address, the problems yeah, okay. in in academic debates, right. largely. Uh, and you characterize kind of two poles of the debate on the left that I think was a really useful heuristic for me. Oh yeah, okay, uh, yeah. The one being like the <clears throat> uh, well, I mean, two different expressions of the debate, right? The first, yeah. One. yeah. I can. Sorry, I put you on the spot. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Well, yeah. That's why I'm here. Uh, <laughs> well, let's let's talk badly about the deceased. I'm only kidding. I'm uh, Ellen <laughs> Wood, the late Ellen Mixon's Wood, absolutely brilliant uh, political Marxist that she was. I have a degree from York University in Toronto, so I obviously yeah. owe a tremendous. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, I owe a tremendous debt to that woman. She was at York for a long time and made really made her stamp uh, on that department. Not only right. as a you know as a head of that department <laughs> for some time, but also. Uh, cultivating the culture of the department and what will come out of it. George Commonell is now there carrying on her course on, on, uh, you know, the, the history and the state and all that stuff. And so mm-hmm. very proud, rich legacy there that Ellen was a part of. And, uh, if, if, if you all have not read Ellen, uh, you should, uh, yeah, that, that being said, yeah. uh, that being said, we're going to be critical <laughs> of, yeah. of, of, of some of her postures around, uh, uh race and, and economism and all the rest of it. And it's yeah. the really critical piece. Sorry, Brianna, for jumping in here, but you know, anytime somebody likes to smear you, Adolf, as, as this, uh, you know, vulgar economistic class only Marxist, let say, 
you ever read Ellen Mason's Wood on Race before? <laughs> because again, as brilliant as she was, and she was an absolutely yeah. oh, yeah. reading a, a, yeah. a mensch in her in her way, right in a very right. way in her own time. Uh, yep. You know, there is a, a, a more or a, a less historical, theoretical, perhaps even economistic strain. Of, mm-hmm. of of Marxian understanding when it comes to a formalistic notion of class uh, and, and political economy. Maybe start off by talking about that in in um, you know and in, uh, in opposition to kind of the, the the path that you try to lay out in this essay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, I mean, to me, I mean, like I'll start this way. Um, so, I mean, Marxism is this big, rich way way of viewing and constructing the world, right? And there. And it's full of um, important starting points, right? Mm-hmm. And how one determines, you know, starting point. Like I just added, I, I, um, I, I'm sure that I mean, Brianna's seen this, but I just added like um, a tagline to the end of my Burma shaved list of six uh, of uh, quotes, quotes, my signature on my outgoing email. Uh, that an implication of the 11th thesis on Feuerbach is that book Marxists are not Marxists. Um, <laughs> and, and I mentioned that in this context because like where, where one chooses a starting point is kind of dependent on, on how one reads like the main dangers and contradictions that need to be confronted uh, I mean, politically at, at any given moment. And to me for some time now, and this is partly you know, just because of what the academy is, but also I think, uh, I mean, politically, um, Marx or um, um, a view that historical materialism is the is the critical intellectual center of Marxism. And it's not the only place you can start, right? But to me, at this point, I think that's a very important way to to approach the struggles that that confront us. <clears throat> um, and um, with respect to the race class debate, it was already the case by the beginning of the current century that it it was um, a debate that was occurring up at at a level of abstraction that just didn't seem that didn't have the ability to shed any light like on anything. And partly, um, uh, it was a matter of of. of Partly my local placement had something to do with it because like every institution has its distinctive pathologies. The pathology at the new school has always been skywriting. Um, so, so like you get into this, mm. these um, you know, debates that just make clear the problems with operating at a very high level of abstraction, which is that this, it leaves sort of great hiding places for messiness and uh, yeah. and ambiguity right it's like uh the big abstractions let you uh, sweep the messiness of history under the bed basically so i just came to trying to think through and to some extent i mean most of my political like an intellectual life has been caught up in one way or another with trying to make sense of the race cla- class dichotomy uh and i adjust um, you know, em- embarked on further emboldened by this experience with prop, whatever the hell it was, um, that that 
the only way to talk about race uh, is to talk about it concretely in in discrete historical circumstances, because if you try to talk about it any other way, then you're reifying it. And if you reify it, well, guess what you've done? You've like essentialized, right? right. Um, so, so that's, that's the project that I was engaged in, right? I'm at, at, at that point. Um, and I also, um, was, you know, after, you know, centuries in, uh, uh, of um, in, engagement, either directly or on the periphery of, of um, you know, certain kinds of Marxoid um, catechism schools, right? Uh, I mean, basically, um, I wanted to try to avoid all of that. Try to avoid um, you know, going back to the holy text, but but to see historical materialism as 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 a way that we understand the world, not just a tool for understanding the world, but how we understand the world. And then, you know, I didn't, I mean, I wasn't really going for like a formalist question, like what, what would an historical materialist um, understanding of the race class dichotomy in, in American history look like? That's the kind of question that somebody like John Romer would ask, right? Uh, I mean, not, but I mean, not the historical materialist part, obviously. Uh, you know, what would a neoclassical understanding of Marxism look like? But so, well, there's a whole industry of of people who are writing articles like that right now. You see oh, them. You oh see wow! Them again, in, that in too. Histor- yeah, you see them in the historical materialism journal. For those of you who are into huh. dusty books enough to the extent where you know what the fuck that is, uh, but yeah, it's uh, wow. it's it's just a road to nowhere. And I encourage people not to go down that rabbit hole. And for the same reason, you just implicate, you know, insinuate. Yeah, that's a PSA, brother. That's a PSA you just made. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. So anyway, so. <laughs> So I thought, okay, well, let's try to lay out what um, a, a coherent, um, I mean, historical materialist way of thinking about race and what race does in capitalist, uh, I mean, societies. And I'll say this too, because because I don't think I say this often enough. Um, but my good friend and colleague, uh, uh, Roger Smith, was at that point wor- working on his massive book, Civic Ideals. Uh, that's a study of uh, that. That for, first of all challenges um, you know the American or um, contradictions around the American creed and understanding of of uh, of, um, um, of of the persistence of of um, inegalitarian ideologies like in the U.S. Um, and he argues that that throughout the history of the Republic uh, and before, I mean, you can see. Uh, multiple tendencies, right? One that's egalitarian, one's, one that's in, inegalitarian, uh, and one that's uh, he described um, initially as uh, ascriptive Americanism. And we, we, we've, been, we, we've been engaged in like a discussion about this stuff for almost 40 years now because we came up through the ranks together at Yale and then, and then he's the person who uh, recruited me at Penn. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, but from our conversations, like it hit me that well, yeah, uh, there that um, race is um, a species of a genus of um, ideologies of of ascriptive of essentialized ascriptive differentiation, 
that perform Im- important work mm-hmm. in the reproduction of capitalism as a social order and a cultural order. And one of the problems with economistic Marxism, which is another reason that I am still befuddled by the popularity of the Second International among my young friends in DSA, because when I was at that stage, stage of the game, the one thing that we all understood was it spit on Kowski, but... but, uh, <laughs> but Shots fired. <laughs> right. But anyway... Uh, Look, nobody's going to argue uh, to your face. You know that, by the way, right? Like, that's fine. But, uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> to, to but I mean, the thing is that, I mean, we're... That, it, that if you look at capitalism, not, not, not just as, um, as uh, you know, an economic relation, but as a social and cultural order that has to be re- reproduced through social relations and through um, the ideological understandings, like mystifications, then from that perspective, the question of, I, mean, I thought the question, well, I'll finish one thought before I go, go to another, um, that you can see, and I know this sounds like a functionalist account, and it sounds like a functionalist account because I always do it in a shorthand way, but it's not mm-hmm. functionalist, like it's evolutionary. Mm-hmm. Um, that, um, but, but any hierarchical social order depends on um, on the ideologies of ascriptive difference, right? I mean, even, mm-hmm. but I'm sure even like the, you know, the empire in like Star Wars had had some, I don't know, but well, but you can't just rule by, 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 by force and might. And I mean, actually, and I apologize for the digression, but, um, you know, one of the really fascinating things about Mark, Mark Massauer's book on, 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 on Hitler's empire, right, um, is... It is once they started to gobble up its empire in in the east, there was deepening and chronic tension uh, you know, between the objectives of wanting to manage the empire, which means you couldn't let all, well the poles were like a, um, a lost cause, but you couldn't let all of the Ukrainians know that you were convinced that they were all uber uh, untermenschen, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the force of the ideology was you couldn't, but was what what was that you couldn't keep yourself from telling the motherfuckers just how you felt about it, <laughs> yeah. and especially when 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 you killed all their clan, right? So so even there, right? I, well, um, I I guess I'm trying to say that even under national socialism, like you needed to have um, some um, some ideological justification that. Mm-hmm. rationalize the hierarchy to those who 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 were every step along the way because it stabilizes like the order yeah right? sort of ascriptive cosmology right D- let's define yeah. that word a- ascriptive is a, it's a piece of jargon right let's let's define that for the lay audience well yeah I mean, it's easy um, um i mean ultimately it's an understanding that you are uh, or, or that your place in the world is determined by what you are are or are understood to be like instead of what what you do right um so woman well mm-hmm. bitch where's my sandwich right i mean that's what yeah, that yeah, yeah. comes come, right. come comes down to ultimately right yeah uh, and i mean historical this is the, method of controlling populations for purposes yeah but i mean this is like the other insight about this that race 
is only one species of this genus, right? There are many kinds kinds of of, of ascriptive ideologies, right? Uh, and systems of of ascriptive hierarchy, um, and they vary um, as much as um, hierarchically ordered social orders vary, right? So that kind of historicizes race, like in one way, right? Like it takes it out of, um, and then uh, so 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 then like the task of the piece is to show how in a thumbnail version how race evolved as a particular kind of descriptive ideology in in the U.S. and the work work that it's done uh, and 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 I mean as I recall one of the um, you know the flashpoint moments uh, between me and Ellen was was her contention that you can have um, capitalism with without race, and you certainly can, um, but you can't have a really existing capitalism without some some ideologies of ascriptive differentiation and of the hierarchy. Uh, and in that sense, um, you know, the other difference that she wanted to push was the difference between capitalist and pre-capitalist, um, I mean, societies. And, and I said to her, uh, and, and, and I might rejoin that, that, well, the differences probably aren't as great as you think they are, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Right, right, because... That's an occupational hazard for a political Marxist. You can't sit through a Raptors game in Toronto without, uh, you know, hearing about uh, the importance of the differences between pre-capitalist and capitalist uh, right. modes no, no. of accumulation. Right, <laughs> right absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for, yeah, that's absolutely correct. Yeah, but absolutely. it's it's good. It's important, but 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 it's not everything. So we're going to talk a lot more about Ellen Mason's Wood and her kind of uh, political Marxist inclinations to uh, make very strong and strict uh, historical delineations, uh, which are good in some instances and uh, maybe bad in others. But uh, there's a little cliffhanger for you. Uh, we're going to wrap up the A side here. I hope you all have enjoyed this extended A side, the free version with Adolf Free Jr. Always a pleasure to have him on the show. Uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, due to uh, capitalist market implications, we got to take it over the B side for the patrons. Uh, DPS is an institution of political education and cadre development, and uh, we can't do this without the generous support of our patrons. So head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a member today. Your support will enable more episodes in this Black Political Thought series, which is going to be so good. I'm really looking forward to this. And uh, I know you guys are too. So head over to patreon.com and become a patron and you will get instant access to the remainder of our chat with Dr. Reed and, uh, and all the rest of the four years of back catalogs that uh, Adolf and I have accumulated over the years. So uh, yeah, thanks again. We'll sign off here for, for the masses. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. See you guys on the base side. Bye.